Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. In the documentary film series Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, Physicist and best-selling author Alan Lightman investigates how key findings of modern science help us find our bearing in the cosmos. What do these new discoveries tell us about ourselves, and how do we find meaning in them? Throughout this highly cinematic three-part series, Alan takes viewers along on his journey of exploration from prehistoric paintings in a French cave to a giant subatomic particle accelerator in Switzerland. The film series, again, is called Searching for Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science. And we're joined today by the host of that series, and that would be Alan Lightman. Alan, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. I love the way the film opens, the series opens with you in uh, lying in the bottom of your boat uh, offshore in, a, in, a, in the middle of the night. Uh, tell us a little bit about... I, we see from that sort of the inspiration for your quest, but what was it that was in your mind when you decided to embark upon this journey? Well, that that scene in the boat it was a, was a reenactment of something that actually happened a few years ago, and it's actually in the opening scene of of a of a book called "Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine" that was published in two thousand and eighteen. I think that many people have had a similar experience where they have a few moments where they feel like they're sort of out of their body and connected to the cosmos. And that moment in the boat, I was looking, it was late at night, and I was out on the ocean alone and very quiet, very dark. And uh, I lay down in, in the boat, stopped the engine, looked up at the stars and felt like I was becoming part of the stars. I sort of lost track of my body, lost track of time. I've had other experiences in the boat and other experiences like that uh, i think all of us have uh and you sort of get out of your local sliver of time and space feel part of something much larger than yourself and I, I, although i think that many people have had that experience i seem to have been able to describe it in a way that has has captured some people that it, it, we thought that it was good a good opening for the the the, uh, the series uh, because it does raise the the question of of uh, how can we have such kinds of experiences if we're all material stuff made of atoms and molecules which I believe as a scientist how can we have uh, spiritual experiences like that and and other complex human experiences like consciousness falling in love. A whole range of things how can all of that emerge from from just material atoms and molecules from the neurons of our brains so that was a good launch for the series let's talk a little bit about your background i described you as a physicist and writer just a little bit about your history in science your work in your previous part of uh, your life on explaining science and giving people an, a better understanding of the world we live in well, I, I've been interested in both the sciences and the arts from a young age. I wrote poetry and short stories as a young person. I had a, a career as a research physicist for many years. I, 
uh, taught at, at various universities, taught physics and did research in physics, but I continued to write all along. Although I think it's it's very important to explain science to people. Um, I don't feel that that is my primary mission. I want to connect science to other human activities. Um, and and I want to connect it to philosophy and theology and ethics and show science as 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 a as a part of 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 our human existence and and also to to do things that 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 are literary. I try to be poetic in my writing. I'm trying to do more than explain, you know, why what galaxies are made of and what atoms are made of and so on. Although I, I think that those explanations are important. In your life, and you were growing up as a young man, was there a moment or was there a period of time in the sort of formation of this search for answers? And was there a, was there a moment when you said, you know, this is what I what I need to do? Because it feels like watching this three-part series, these are things that are fundamental to your sense of persona. Well, I, I think that I've had a philosophical bent since since a very young age. And somewhere around the age of 10 or 11, I still have it. I wrote a poem that has some lines in it like, who am I? Will it matter to the stars when I die? Something like that. And you, you said, how old were you when you wrote that? I was 10 or 11 when I wrote that. <laughs> I, I don't think 10 or 11 should be thinking about death, but I was thinking about meaning. And so uh, my fascination or concern with meaning and uh, with philosophical matters in general go back to a very young age. And I, I don't know why that is. It's just one of my peculiarities. Yeah. In terms of people that you looked up to once you began to explore these questions and started to think it through, um, you wrote a book about Einstein. I'm going to guess he's one of your heroes. Was yes. he the, sort of that 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 lighthouse that of a of a person that that you gravitated to and why well i was interested in in einstein as many people are because of of his revolutionary thinking about time and space uh, i also was interested in him because he was able to challenge conventional wisdom he he worked out some of his major theories when he was only 25 or 26 years old and i think that it takes a young person of that age to have the audacity to overthrow centuries of received wisdom. I also was attracted to him because he he wrote about a lot of of issues other than physics. He he wrote about government and society and human relations, and that appealed to me. There were other people that I read at a young age. Uh, C.P. Snow, who was a trained as a physicist, but uh, then started writing novels. And I thought that was pretty cool. I read The Story of Philosophy by Will Durant at a, at a young age, and uh, that sort of fed my philosophical. At the age of 14 or 15, I couldn't understand Immanuel Kant or, or Nietzsche or people like that, but I appreciated philosophical inquiry in general. It's such a fascinating era of the early 
part of the 20th century. And these people were born in the latter part of the 19th century. There was so much going on in Europe and France and sort of golden age of enlightenment and 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 science was beginning to be able to come up with ways in which to explain the world that we lived in in ways that were profound. And mm-hmm. this this kind of uh, rush of these I'll call them big brains that were going were you know Freud and Einstein and there's so many to to name great literary works great uh, great art great uh, great science yeah it just it, it's a remarkable era in human history and it sets so many things in motion that we now are beginning really truly beginning to reap the rewards of their their revolutionary ideas it's yes just, I agree with you yeah. one thing that's always fascinated me is that relativity and cubism were invented about the same year in 1905 Einstein came up with this theory of relativity and Picasso and Brock came up with cubism the same year and although I don't think that those two discoveries had any cause and effect with, with with each other I think that they were part of this general ethos that you're describing of a time of invention and new way of thinking and the arts as well as the sciences. And it was also a time of relative prosperity. Certainly that's relative to Europe and the United States was beginning to become an industrial power, but also it was it was prior to World War One and then World War II, which were obviously tremendous upheaval in 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 uh in that during that period of time. Well let's switch gears and let's talk about this wonderful series that you put together let's again tell people it's called searching our quest for meaning in the age of science it is going to be available beginning on january 7th Uh, let me just mention that the uh when you first described it you you said that i was the the uh the central character of the of the series but the person who really made it happen is the uh director jeff haynes styles and he was the original uh, senior producer of, of the original Carl Sagan Cosmos series and has done many other science documentaries. And he uh, is the person that, that had the idea for this series after reading one of my books and has been the the talent that has, has kept the whole thing together. Thank you. Thank you for that. The uh, series is broken into three parts. Uh, the first part, The Stars and the Osprey big and the small and then closing out it homo techno so it explores and on different levels the human experience or understanding of the micro and the macro and how these things come together in our human imagination in the way that we we for some reason pursue these paths which could be leading us nowhere but we have enough faith in ourselves and our intuition to follow them. Those are the things of tremendous human accomplishment, and we see that in the film. Um, how did you de- de- decide to divide up the series? What was sort of the, the thought process for how you approached this? Well, we initially thought of, of, of all the things that we wanted to cover. And, and in fact, we didn't know initially that it would be a series. We thought maybe it would be in an hour, a, a single hour and a half feature. We, we just uh, started making a list of, of, of all of the topics that we wanted to cover. Many of them were taken from my book, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine, and a new book that's coming out. And then we began organizing the topics 
thematically, we still didn't know that it would be a three-part series. And it was only after we did all of the filming uh, and saw the material that we had that we realized that we had too much for an hour and a half. And I, I think that it's often the case that you don't know what you've got until you 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 have all the clips and the, f the filming done. And then we organize it into, th into the three episodes, uh, more or less thematically. Well, well, kudos to your production team and the editing and the, the storytelling itself. You mentioned Jeff Haynes Styles and his his leadership in all of this. There are a lot of people that I feel like we could focus on. We, we would use up a lot of our time doing that. But uh, the one of the things, and it's in the third episode, um, and one of my the people that I'd like to focus on for just a second or two, and I want to make sure it's a Ray Wise. Am I getting yeah. that right? Yeah. His search for verifying gravitational waves, which yeah. was predicted by Einstein. Is that right? Right. Yeah. What a fascinating. Um, Einstein, pre Einstein predicted gravitational waves, but he, with his theory of gravity, but he, thought that they would never be detected because we the uh the gravitational force is much much weaker than the electrical and magnetic forces and therefore their effect on on matter is much much smaller we, we think of 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 gravity as being a strong force because it it holds us to the earth and and makes us frown when we weigh too much on the scale uh but the reason why we feel gravity more than the electrical forces is because the, the electrical forces are more, more or less canceled out by equal amounts of positive and negative charge in our bodies. But gravity is not canceled out. Uh, but when you just consider the raw gravitational force compared to the raw electrical force, the gravity force is much, much weaker. And Einstein thought we would never be able to build a detector that was sensitive, sensitive enough to detect a wave of gravitational energy traveling through space, which is what a gravitational wave is. Ray Weiss and, and other people worked on building a gravitational wave detector for 40 years. That's what I'm talking about. Just what you did. <laughs> 40 years. For, for, 40 years before they each each year, it, it the detector got a little bit better, was a little more sensitive. Graduate students came and gone, came and went doing their theses but never seeing the completion but finally after 40 years the detector was sensitive enough and i think in 2015 was the was the first detection uh and it's really just a, it's a it's a landmark in in science that that is equal to galileo's telescope of it, it just uh, we, we still have have no idea of, of of what a revolution in science it will bring about. And and Ray Weiss was the leading experimentalist on that project. But first, I want to remind our listeners, we're speaking with Alan Lightman. And he is the subject as well as our guide in this wonderful, terrific documentary, three part documentary series called Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science. And just to make one more point about that what it was that they measured is phenomenal to me and it's something that we didn't really couldn't prove until fairly recently were black holes talk to, just talk to us through that little part of it so it was proving that gravitational waves were 
Well, we knew theoretically that gravitational waves had to exist. Uh, this was the first detection of them. And the, the first event, the first cosmic event that produced the gravitational waves that were detected was the collision of two large black holes 1.3 billion light years away. So it took about 1.3 billion years for those waves to travel from there to here and to land on Ray Weiss's detector in 2015. We had already knew the that black holes existed. Isn't we, that a relatively new confirmation in terms the, of black holes? The first black hole was confirmed in 1972. And, and I know that because I was a graduate student in physics at the time, and I actually did some of the uh, some of the early theoretical work interpreting the discovery of black holes. I mean, of course, there were many other people besides me who were doing that as well. But I was one of the graduate students who happened to be working on my Ph.D. thesis at the time that the first black hole was discovered. So it's a very exciting period in the early 1970s. We knew that black holes existed and we knew that gravitational waves existed. We had not detected gravitational waves. And once you detect a gravitational wave, and of course, you you know, you know more than just that the wave exists. You, you know what, what its frequency pattern is, what's, what its intensity is, a lot of characteristics about it. You can work backwards and infer what kind of cosmic event produced that gravitational wave. So it's it's really like a new sense organ organ to witness the cosmos with. That's just it's such a I mean I'm focused on this and I to the to uh, I don't mean to neglect the rest of this wonderful series, but for some reason this one I really locked onto because of all of the the factors you're mentioning. And when I was growing up, I remember and maybe this maybe I misunderstood this, hmm. but when I was growing up, I was told that they couldn't prove gravity but that we observationally knew that it was is it am i was that is that crazy that i heard it that way or yeah that's crazy <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy that you heard it that way yeah that so i can confirm that that was crazy. <laughs> you can't Thankfully, yes. because I've been holding on to doorknobs and everything for the for the rest of, since then. Well, I mean, I think, I, that you're, I think that you're safe. You you can cancel all of those insurance policies. <laughs> all right. Well, there and then of course there. So we're I've been focusing on the science part of it, part of this. But there's so much in this series about the existential, the unknown, our search for what it is to be a part of this incredible universe yeah. that we know we're just beginning to understand and we're just beginning to see the very beginning of because of the the james webb telescope well, i mean i talked to a lot of people besides scientists i talked to philosophers uh, rebecca goldstein i talked to uh the dalai lama with him i uh, i wanted to know whether he thought that we could build a very advanced android that would be conscious and yes. and just just before him, I I talked to to the most advanced android in the world uh, called Bina Forty Eight, and and Bina Forty Eight has the head and shoulders of a woman. She can see you, she can hear you, she can talk to you. She has a, a giant computer database that, that can cipher the things you say and give re intelligent responses back. 
And so I showed the Dalai Lama a clip of being a 48, and I asked him whether in the future, whether we might be able to build an even more advanced Android that, that was conscious. And he said, absolutely not. He said that, that consciousness is not a material thing, that consciousness existed before the universe began and will exist after it ends. That's an ex I mean, I also talked to a, my favorite rabbi in Memphis, Tennessee, yes. Micah, Micah Greenstein, and he said that no, consciousness could not exist in, in such a thing, that it wouldn't have a soul, that it, it was man-made, and nothing man-made would have a soul. So those are the kinds of conversations that I had with, with I asked uh, the philosopher Rebecca Goldstein whether the universe would have meaning billions of years from now when all of the stars had burned out and there was no life left in the universe, where there would still be meaning. And her response was, why should we attribute more meaning to that distant time in the future than right now? Why shouldn't we be concerned about this moment right now and ask whether this moment has meaning, which I thought was a, a really interesting response. One of my favorite things in talking about the development of human beings and our place in the world is the caves that you met, that you visit in France. That that yeah. that that desire on the part of human beings at the earliest stages of understanding the world around them, and they had to tell their story. Yeah, they had to. Yeah, and that we are still doing that. Right. We visited the the caves of Fontagam, and this was one of the most wonderful experiences I ever had because the uh, we were able to get in touch with the uh, administrator of the cave. I think we might have had to go all the way up to the French government who made the cave available to us, just me and Jeff and the camera crew. And there was nobody else in that cave at the time that we were there. And, and we were able to, to just admire the wonderful prehistoric drawings on the wall and the symbols that were on the wall that suggested that that these people, uh, these early ancestors of ours, were were searching for meaning, uh, just as you said, that way back forty thousand years ago, and probably much earlier than that, that human beings were trying to find their place in this strange cosmos that we find ourselves in. Well, I would say find meaning, but also the desire, the immutable desire to to tell our story, to try to f find some way to explain the unexplainable. I mean, in my personal opinion, when we talk about the development of human beings, part of the development was, a, a, I'll call it religion, a philosophy of the, the life beyond themselves to what was on the other side of the hill, what was beyond what they could see. And it's this, like I said, this desire to explain the unexplainable. And I think yes. it's so basic to human beings and along the way to tell our version our story of that what we interpret as we go as we move through this yes yes wow i uh well alan first of all thank you for this series searching our quest for meaning in the age of science i love that the way that you that title plays out our quest for meaning in the age of science and and we need to understand that science is an invaluable tool to understanding our world and to be we're better off for it being around we are in an age where i think we're finding anti-science is 
flourishing and it's frightening to me that that's yeah well i think that one of the the fuels of the anti-science sentiment and it's part of the the deep polarization of the society right now is the feeling that 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 science is is part of the elite establishment that doesn't care about ordinary human beings one of the things that i hope that we do with the series in, in a small way is to show that that science is is part of being human that it connects to other things that we're concerned with like meaning like like falling in love like feeling connected to other human beings at the end of the second episode i go to cambodia and i talk to a young cambodian woman who is harvesting worms and using their droppings to provide fertilizer to farmers to improve their farms you you can't get more down to earth science than that amen to that and i'll just throw in one last note in that regard you know it's the indigenous people of this world who managed to survive in the way that you just described for thousands of years we need to be bringing those kinds of technologies those kinds of understandings of their of the world we live in of the soil soil is incredibly important to getting ourselves on the other side of climate change and and to see something like that in this is is heartening and it isn't that hard to do it's just a matter of will to know how to do it the indians lived in the plains in the united states for centuries and did very well and now we've denuded this middle part of our country in ways that we need to recover from. And there's so much here. There's so much to take away. Um, Alan Lightman, thank you. Thank you for thank your you, Mike. Yeah, thank you for your film. Thank you for your time. Again, the film is called Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science. And it is coming out on January 7th. And I'm sorry, I, I should know this. What platform are we going to be on for, for this? It it will be on many PBS stations throughout the country each each station determines its own schedule it will also be available for streaming from w from pbs.org okay starting january 7th um it will be on the world channel of of many stations of, of many uh cable networks uh and there's a way that you can find out uh if it's not on your your primary pbs station you can you can find uh go to the worldchannel.org and find out where it is on that channel um it will finally it will be available for streaming on our website which is searchingformeaning.org okay. uh so all of those ways it will be available and i'll have all of that posted to filmschoolradio.com we'll have all that up and by the way the world channel that you mentioned is a wonderful platform for many PBS programs. It's been a great addition to the PBS family. So yeah. thank you. Thank you so much, Alan Lightman. And anytime, come back and we will we'll share a cup of coffee sometime thank somewhere you. down the road as well. So thank you so. Thank you, Mike. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.